Wherever you are on your leadership voyage, it starts here. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Leadership Voyage, Season 2, Episode 21. I'm very excited to be back. Leadership Voyage, the podcast dedicated to your pursuit of becoming a great leader. And my name is Jason Wick, your host. Thanks for joining. If you're a regular listener, thank you, thank you. If you are a new listener, welcome. Uh, let's see. It's been a while. Uh, for me personally, it is a busy time. I know in May it was difficult to podcast, and in August, September here, it's been pretty difficult to podcast as well. Back to school is a busy, busy time, and this year, on top of the usual back-to-school activities with two children, uh, also had a large project at work that has recently launched. So it was a pretty big deal getting through that. And now I'm excited to kind of get back into podcasting form to close out this second season. The site is leadership.voyage. You can email me directly, Jason Wick, at startyourvoyage at gmail.com. We are on YouTube uh, at Leadership Voyage. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, Jason Allen Wick, or the show does have its own LinkedIn site, Leadership Voyage Podcast. Go ahead and take a look. All that information is in the show description, wherever you have found this episode. Okay, what are we going to get back into with the show here? Uh, it is mid-September, but for the show, we are kind of coming to the home stretch of season two. And one thing I've been doing this year is giving you summaries of really interesting articles that I have read. I know everyone has, is so uh, pressed for time. They, their time is so valuable that sometimes we are just scrolling on our phones and, and wasting away, not even knowing what we're looking at. So hopefully here's something that might be interesting uh, to you. It's probably a five to 10 minute read from the Wall Street Journal business section. And one thing I subscribe to is the Wall Street Journal business weekly newsletter. It comes every Monday, I think, and it's it's always got some interesting headlines to highlight. And this one is, I think, appropriate to follow up the most recent guest interview I had on the show with Kelly McDonald uh, about diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI training. And this article is uh, by Mazarin Banaji and Frank Dobbin, who are a psychologist and sociologist at Harvard. This article says why DEI training doesn't work and how to fix it. So many of us out here in the corporate world have gone through diversity, equity, and inclusion training, particularly in the last three years, I would say, since George Floyd and, and a lot of the growing visibility around social injustice. What's fascinating is why DEI training comes to be in different companies. Now, I myself am not an, am not an expert on this. Uh, go listen to the last episode, uh, season two, episode 20 with Kelly McDonald, if you want to learn more about the details about some of this stuff. But why do different businesses do DEI training? The best version of this is hopefully something like we're doing this because we believe it's the right thing for our business, for our people. 
We want more diverse workforce. We want more inclusion of all different types of cultural perspectives, personal perspectives. And we value that, right? In other words, this type of training aligning with core values is probably the ultimate, uh, at least that I can think of, the, the ultimate reason to do it on a business level. And then if you kind of follow this continuum all the way to the other end, it might be that we're doing this as a business because we feel like we have to in order to not get sued. And, and that's what this article really brings to light. It is highly research-based. I just want to say that. Um, there are a lot of uh, references in this article uh, at Wall Street Journal. The link is in the show description as well. But this is really looking at the training of DEI, uh, DEI training at scale, what is working, what is not, and how is that affecting what really is supposed to be the point of DEI training. We're supposed to be getting better on our personal journeys. Our workforces are supposed to be getting stronger with more diverse perspectives and more diverse people. That's why we want to do it, right? If you just kind of think of it on an island or think of it in a principled point of view, that's why we should do this. So this is a really interesting article. So again, it's uh, Mazarin Banaji and Frank Dobbin. And it starts off talking about some of the dynamics that we're facing here. And these are facts, okay? I, I don't really ever want to get into politics on this show, but they're just facts. At least 30 states right now are considering legislation to defund diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at public universities and state agencies. And you're even seeing companies being sued to stop diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And so you see a really strong juxtaposition between what many of us were experiencing in America in 2020 around the, the rising awareness of these topics and now what, what kind of at least perceptibly feels sudden uh, litigation against such things. It's quite the, the roller coaster, to use a metaphor, what has been happening with the advocates for diversity, equity, and inclusion training? They are upset that after decades of diversity training, you're not seeing a lot of progress in the diversification of the workforce. And so the authors here are asking the question, are essentially the conservative side, which wants to get rid of the training, and the advocates, which are frustrated with the results of this training, are they basically coming from entirely different perspectives, but kind of seeing the same thing, which is, this isn't helping? And that's the question that these authors, uh, these researchers are exploring. They establish their credibility as authors here in the article a little bit. One of them's a psychologist. One is a sociologist. They've been studying bias uh, and organizational diversity programs for decades. Okay, And what they say here is that Americans need education about bias because we all have it without being aware of it. We also need to understand that bias operates systemically and has to be addressed at three different levels, individual, institutional, and societal. And I mean, these are huge challenges, right? These are not things that change uh, in a week. 
What they're talking about here that I really uh, stood out to me is a graph between 1971 and 2021, I believe this graph is, that shows different demographics, black women, Latina women, black men, Latino men, Asian women, white women, Asian men, white men, and the likelihood by percentage that a particular group has a management job. And what you see here is that the likelihood is not very different for most of these groups over the last 50 years. There's not a whole lot of difference in the likelihood that, for example, a Latina woman woman would have uh, a management job. According to this graph, it's like, let's see, 2% in 1971, and now it's maybe 6% likelihood. And there isn't a lot of progress to show. And they, they do highlight that, that graph, which is really helpful visually, at least for me to see. Let's dive into what this story is all about. But I wanted to first reference bias, okay? Um, I had a guest on uh, earlier this season, season two, episode 16, Carol Rossi, who is a user experience research consultant. And in order for them to get strong insights, uh, they have to try to reduce bias as much as possible. And the context in which we discussed this, Carol and I, it had nothing to do with diversity, equity, inclusion uh, per se. But this short snippet, I think, will help maybe help us all remember that there is so much implicit bias in how we operate. And that's just a fact. We are showing our biases all the time. And we're not even aware of it a lot of the time. So here's a quick snippet from Carol. Different context, but I just wanted to play this for you all to kind of to, to set the stage. It's not as easy to see if insights are tainted by bias. And it's really easy for people to inadvertently introduce bias into a study. And they may not even be thinking, I'm doing a study. They might be thinking, I'm having a conversation with a customer. Okay, so there you heard it from Carol, right? It's really hard to mitigate uh, bias. And implicit bias specifically, which we'll get into here, is really something you're not even particularly aware of. It is really hard to try to reduce uh, implicit bias, increase your awareness, and, and, and all of these things are a huge challenge. So let's dive into this article on that level. What does the research show? Research shows... We have, as a society in America, since the 1960s, significantly reduced our conscious prejudice. I myself am a white male in my 40s. What it says here is white Americans today largely believe in racial equality. That's as an external idea. So that progress, at least externally, has gone up quite a bit since the 1960s, which is the heart of the civil rights movement in this country. What's, what's interesting, though, is that implicit bias, which is the, the less conscious bias, okay, that bias hasn't really declined very much. And they've got an article here, uh, studies to cite, for both of the things I'm referencing. So feel free to go to the article and dive into all of the specific uh, the research. But it says here that bias, implicit bias, 
against some groups of people has barely changed at all. That's kind of a frustrating thing to hear about. You hear and see examples of how our implicit bias affects how we treat other people. And so much about our implicit bias is formed based on our experiences, our upbringing, all these other things, right? How do you change that? Well, you can't change it, right? You, you can't change the, what's already happened. It's already where we are. And that's what I was saying early on. I'm not an expert here. I'm not a diversity, equity, and inclusion trainer. But what else can we do other than embrace ourselves on the journey we're on? Here's where I am today. And my goal is to be committed to getting a little bit better continually. That's the attitude we have to have on a topic like this. We don't change overnight or in a week, and we can't go back and change our experiences we've had. And so when we get to the organizational level around DEI training, here's what the authors want to call out. Unfortunately, most training programs and organizations don't educate people about bias, and they may even do harm. There is a study that is cited here in this article. Most of the training programs that are rolled out in uh, institutions do indeed uh, fall short in two very specific ways. And those two specific ways that they call out here are, first, they use implicit bias education to shame people for holding stereotypes. Let me say that again. They use implicit bias education to shame trainees for their stereotypes. Remember what we just said. I mean, this is very, this is an uncomfortable topic. Like, let's be honest, right? It's an uncomfortable topic. What can I do to change what's already happened to me? What can you do to change what's already happened to you? You can't change that. Something you can do is you can create more awareness through education. However, if I'm first exposed to training through my employer, DEI training, that makes me feel guilty for my implicit bias, that's a bad first impression. That decreases the likelihood that I'm going to embrace this when I hear about it. That's what's really unfortunate. It says in this article that oftentimes trainers play gotcha by sending a trainee to an online test for education and research, and instead of training people to help them learn that bias is pervasive, a trainer will then use that test to prove that trainees are morally flawed. This leaves people with guilt for having the biases that conflict with our values as Americans. That's a really heady topic for me to think about. We have a training about diversity, equity, inclusion, and oftentimes that trainer is giving us a test to essentially say, ha, look, you're morally flawed. That's dissonant in our brains because we, I'm going to go ahead and, and guess here. Most of us think we're probably good people, right? That we try to operate from a place with good intention. We know the saying about intentions, okay? <laughs> but when we have good intention, boy, that's difficult to hear that you are morally flawed because of your implicit bias. That is not helping people 
with their journeys of self-improvement. It doesn't win people over to have this gotcha approach, as it's called out in the article. Everyone holds biases they don't control as a consequence of a lifetime of exposure to societal inequality, the media, and the arts. This is a direct quote from the article. I'm going to read it again. Listen to this. Everyone holds biases they don't control as a consequence of a lifetime of exposure to societal inequality, the media, and the arts. And rather than introducing this topic to trainees with humility, quite often, again, the trainers are using this in kind of a weaponized way. So that's one of the big reasons that this DEI training is failing in organizations. Maybe you all have had experiences like that. I have to say, I'm really fortunate with my company because my DEI training, some of that we had uh, most recently uh, last year, I think it was, um, really embraced this idea that you're on a journey and that you have bias. And we all have bias rather than making it seem like something we should feel ashamed about. Embracing that we have it, trying to be more aware of it, and trying to move forward by educating and being more aware and self-improving. The second part here about why this training is often failing is that quite often we are seeing organizations trying to solve the problem of bias by invoking the law to scare people about the risks of letting their bias go unchecked. Oftentimes, you're getting this kind of idea where We are educated as the trainees through the organization. We have to take this test to pass. And what is unsaid but understood by the employees is that my CEO or whoever it is is making me do this training so that we can check boxes and protect ourselves from litigation. The spirit of that is not aligned with the whole idea of why we would do the training in the first place, which is to truly become better people and to have a more diverse, effective organization. So as the authors call out, when you combine these two things, you are biased and the law will get you. Those are the, that's a quote. You are biased and the law will get you. When those are combined, it backfires. When we train our people this way in our organizations, it leads to a reduction in women and people of color having management roles. That's the opposite of what we want, right? We want more diversity in our companies that gets to better solutions, that gets to a more exciting culture, doesn't it? By combining all the cultural perspectives of all the folks in our companies. Before I move on to the better way that's called out in this article, I do want to highlight what Kelly McDonald brought. It's really interesting that I ran across this article this last week, and my most recent guest was Kelly, because Kelly highlighted this exact thing about how some people are not benefiting from diversity, equity, and inclusion training because of the way it's facilitated and run. Diversity fatigue is exactly what it sounds like. It's when people are actually tired of hearing about diversity or DEI, they're over it. Um, and they're, they're, that can happen for a lot of reasons. It can happen because perhaps the training that they received at their company was pretty old school and kind of like shame and blame, you know, the um, that kind of thing. We're, we've really moved away from that, but it depends on, depends on how somebody was trained and when. 
So there you heard it from Kelly. It's just more support for what this article is highlighting. Uh, this article in the Wall Street Journal is highlighting. So the final section in this article is called A Better Way. And that's what we try to do in these uh, these stories on the show. I, I don't like to only call out the problem, but let's create the awareness of the issue. And what is it we can do, right? What is a better way to handle the training? And hopefully some of you listening have either been instrumental in your organizations or experienced it as a uh, trainee in your organization of some of these better ways that are called out here because that is where things are effective and they help us get towards that end that we're all really looking for, that we believe in. Based on this research of, of training, how do we have a better alternative? So rather than the legal scare tactics, right, training programs should offer managers a way to counter bias, namely train them in strategies for cultural inclusion. So teach skills in listening, skills in observation, and skills in intervention. This can help managers hear employee concerns, notice when workers are feeling shunned, and they can enable, uh, empower the manager to intervene. Also, skills in starting tough conversations on how to treat colleagues. A lot of this stuff is what was just discussed with uh, Kelly McDonald in the, in the season two, episode 20. So I really do encourage you to go back and check that one out if you missed it. They say a lot of these things are skills in management 101, but it's, it's just not always that easy. Quite often, managers don't want to hear bad news, so their employees don't talk about their troubles, don't watch for signs of bullying. And don't speak up when they sense a problem. This is really some basic level stuff, but I think that's encouraging because it shows that some of the core skills that we want to develop as a manager, if you're a manager or as an unofficial leader, right? Many folks out here were unofficial leaders. Then we can invest in those skills and it can really help with all of this. In addition, If training succeeds in conveying the findings from bias-bias research, again, that bias is unseen but pervasive, it can help build support for wider systemic changes designed to tear down the obstacles to equal opportunity. When you think about it this way, training shouldn't be designed to blame people for moral failings. It should be galvanizing them to support organizational change by giving them education and knowledge and information. That's what's exciting. That's where the opportunity is here. That's where I want you all to think, okay, that's a bummer to hear about, but here are some positive opportunities. Here are some opportunities that we have. When we do it right, this implicit bias education lets the trainees know that people committed to equality do also hold the biases. And knowing that, it can motivate them to reshape their workplaces. How do they counter discrimination, right? So there is opportunity here. I know this is a deep topic. I know this is a lot of information. And maybe even for some of you, it resonates one way or the other, either with a good experience or a bad experience in the DEI, DE&I training. And it's not something that I've really gotten into a lot in the past until the last couple of episodes. But I think it's a really important topic. If you've had a bad DE&I experience, try to hit the reset button if you can. Try to absorb what this article is saying. 
that a lot of times the way that the training was facilitated is the obstacle to the whole end game. See if you can get the reset button. See if we can find more progress on this issue. Make ourselves a little bit better. Help our workforces become even more effective, more exciting, more rich cultures, all of that. Thanks for listening today. Until next time, everybody take care. Mm-hmm.